0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Matthew chapter 3. This morning we are bringing to an end our series on prayer and fasting. And my hope is that the recent weeks have opened up new vistas for you in terms of your walk with God. My hope is that you have been encouraged with the reality of a spiritual discipline that on the surface seems like drudgery but is really meant in the end to lead you into deeper joy. It is this practice that leads to joy because, as we have seen over the past few weeks, fasting is not an end in itself. The goal isn't simply to give up eating or some other activity just for the sake of giving it up. We have said that fasting was the means to the end of spending more time with God. Fasting is a way of seeking God more deeply and more intently. It's a way of having more of the giver and less of his good gifts. This is why even in the title of our series we have put prayer and fasting together. Time is time that is usually taken up in eating, we are encouraging you to take up with prayer during a fast because that's how the Bible envisions it. But this morning I want to end by suggesting you do more than just pray. This morning I want you to, to encourage you to fast from food in order to feast on the Word of God amidst your time in prayer. Why am I encouraging you to do that? Because God's Word is our lifeline to God Himself. It should be the basis for our thinking, the fuel for our worship, and our guide for our living. The way that we, The way that we should know what our hearts should long for what we should strive for in our lives and what we should even ask for in our prayers should all be driven by the revelation of God through His Word. God tells us who He is and who we should be in light of our being, His creation, and we are also confronted with our inability to be who we were created to be. And the good news is that God has not left us to Himself, but has given us a Redeemer through His own Son, Christ, to bring us to Himself and to be remade in the way that God desires. And it is that, that redemption that becomes the foundation for our fasting. For as we continually reflect on God and what He has done for us through Christ, we should grow in our, our acknowledgement of our ongoing need of Him and our desire for Him. And so that is what I hope to lead us into this morning in this final sermon on, on fasting. As we finish off, we want to look at the fasting of Jesus Himself and see how He sets the example for us as one who feasted on the Word even amidst fasting, ultimately so that He might feast on God Himself. So let's look at Matthew chapter 3 this morning. We're actually going to look at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. We want to pick up our reading in verse 13. I encourage you to follow along with me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it now be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. When the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. May that God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Today as we think about this passage in light of our series on fasting, we want to see two things about Jesus' own experience and then use that as the basis to offer a third point where we will reflect and apply uh, this text to our own lives and our own practice of fasting. The first thing that we need to see is this. We see in this passage the fulfillment of a son. The fulfillment of a son. In the context of Jesus' fasting and temptation, He has experienced His baptism. And His baptism is not like the baptism that we experience today. For when we are baptized, we are publicly professing our faith in Christ. We are declaring visibly to those looking on our union with Him by faith. We are identifying with Him. When Jesus was baptized, it was the opposite. He was baptized in order to identify with us just a couple of months we will go through an election process whereby we will select for ourselves by way of ballot vote individuals that we hope will go and represent us to government. That means ideally they will go on our behalf of people that we have chosen and they will represent us in such a way that when they make decisions and cast their votes it is as if we ourselves are there as if we are voting for those things because they will be uh, making decisions in light of our values because that's who we have elected. That's, that's the plan. That's why we, have, uh, we are in a republic with representatives. But in an even greater way, Jesus is meant to be our representative before God. Jesus is the one who represents us before him. And he does that not because he shares our values, not because he's going to do what we would do, but just the opposite. He has done everything that we could never do, nor would we choose to left to ourselves. He has perfectly obeyed God. He has always done what is right, and even in himself and of his own being, he is perfectly righteous before him. Therefore, when Jesus was baptized, he was baptized as our substitute, as the substitute for the people that he would save. It was not for himself that Jesus died on the cross under God's judgment and rose again to life by God's power. He did that for us. Thus, while people were coming to John to be baptized as a sign of their repentance and preparation for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus had nothing to repent of. Instead, he stood in the place of us who need to repent before God in order to receive the salvation won by Christ and enter into a forgiven fellowship with God. Jesus was baptized in order to identify with us and be our substitute. Notice what God says from heaven at his baptism. Verse 17, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God declares Jesus to be his son. More than that, a beloved son, still yet, a son with whom he is well pleased. Now, this has massive significance for Not just Christian theology, but specifically for the Gospel of Matthew. Remember who Matthew is written to. He is writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. He is the long-awaited and hoped-for Messiah. And therefore, as he is writing, this theme of fulfillment is Prominent. Matthew begins by showing Jesus' fulfillment of direct prophecies. God says, this is who's going to come, this is how he's going to come. And Matthew says, Jesus fulfilled those promises. So at the very beginning, chapter 1, through genealogy, he shows that Jesus is the son of David just as promised by God in 2 Samuel 7. By his virgin, virginal conception, Jesus comes in fulfillment of Isaiah 7's promise of God being with his people. By his birth in Bethlehem, Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Micah 5, where God promises a shepherd for his people. But then we hit chapter 2, and Matthew shifts gears on us. You see Jesus' parents fleeing Egypt for a time to escape the killing of the Hebrew children by Herod, who has heard about this king who was born and is jealous for his own power, and therefore decides to wipe out any potential threat, God speaks to Jesus' parents, tells them, leave, they go to Egypt, and they come back. And Matthew says, this fulfills the words spoken by the prophet Hosea, where God says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you read the Bible the way you're supposed to, and you got a little footnote that tells you, even though you're supposed to be so familiar with the Old Testament, you know exactly where that is. Uh, you, you, you read the little footnote, and says, oh, that, that's in a Hosea. So you flip back and you read the chapter of Hosea, and suddenly you realize... What? And you read back in Matthew 2 and you read back in Hosea and say, what is going on here? Because in the context of Hosea, there is nothing about the Messiah. God is not making a prediction about the Christ who is to come. Instead, he is recounting the history of the people of Israel. He is saying that it was out of Egypt that he called his son. That is to say, this, this orphan child laying filthy and naked in the road. and he, And he called this child, he rescued it out of Egypt and cleaned it up and made it his own son how in the world does jesus coming for a brief time out of egypt back into israel how does that fulfill that promise well some people say it doesn't they simply say matthew made a mistake matthew is wrong and that we should not seek to read the bible that way some people say that i do not I think Matthew knows exactly what he is doing. In fact, he's teaching us how to read the Old Testament the right way. What he is showing us is that God has not just fulfilled specific predictive promises in the coming of Jesus, but that the very life and law of Israel has been a promise of the Messiah, and Jesus has in fact filled that promise. In other words, Jesus comes not just as the perfect Savior, but as the perfect Son. Just as the people of Israel was collectively the Son of God, God's child. So now Jesus comes as the embodiment of that people. He is the good and better Israel. He is the Son who never fails to love and obey His Father. Therefore, He is the beloved Son with whom God is well pleased. Israel was beloved. Amazingly so. Graciously so. But God was never well pleased with them in the way he was Jesus because they failed over and over again to love and obey him. When God says, this is my beloved beloved, son with whom I am well pleased, he is affirming that Jesus succeeds where Israel failed as God's son. And therefore, Matthew is highlighting that Jesus fulfills not just the individual prophecies, but He fulfills the, the themes, the hopes, the desires, all everything that is built into what God has done in the past, all of it has been pointing forward to who Jesus is going to be. And that theme of fulfillment ultimately carries over right into the next chapter when we read Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. What happened when Israel came out of Egypt? What happened when God called His Son out of Egypt? Forty years of temptation and sometimes hunger in the wilderness. Likewise, now in this shortened period, Jesus, as it were, reenacts and fulfills that period of testing, not over 40 years, but over 40 days. And that includes even the testing of hunger that God put on His people. And so... Now we look at the second thing we want to see from our text this morning, and that is this, the fasting of a Savior. We saw the fulfillment of a son, now we see the fasting of a Savior. Israel's hunger was imposed on them, while Jesus' hunger was voluntary. But we'll see in a minute. God intentionally let Israel go hungry for a time. Jesus, however, takes the hunger upon himself. We are told explicitly he is fasting. Now, if you just don't have money to buy food, that's not fasting. That's just called poverty, okay? Uh, bad luck, unfortunate, whatever people want to call it. Fasting is self-imposed. It's a voluntary giving up of things. So why did Jesus voluntarily go without food for 40 days? It's actually something of a great irony. Uh, And Matthew loves irony. If we had time, I would show you 10 or 12 ironic themes that that go throughout his gospel. We don't have the time, though. But just think about this. Think about today. In in every context that I can imagine, and maybe you can correct me at the picnic and think of another one, but in every context I imagine, when we prepare for some great event or struggle, we marshal our resources. We, we bring everything together for the event. So in preparation for war, soldiers and ships are mobilized, aircraft and artillery are made ready. In preparation for some sporting event, the players do only light drills and they uh, get rest and sometimes even carb load, load to ensure they have all the energy and stamina and strength that they need for that event. But Jesus has the complete opposite of all that. He is getting ready for a life of ministry. That ministry begins by enduring temptation, even as Israel endured temptation. He is about to go into spiritual combat with Satan himself. And how does he prepare for that? By fasting. By fasting. Think about about what's happening here. The stakes could not be higher. Not just for Jesus, but for us. One pastor says, "Here is Jesus standing on the threshold of the most important public ministry in the history of the world on his obedience and righteousness hangs the salvation of the world. None will escape damnation without this ministry of obedient suffering and death and resurrection. God wills that at the very outset the ministry be threatened with destruction, namely the temptations of Satan to abandon the path of lowliness." And suffering and obedience. And how does Jesus spend his first forty days getting ready for that first massive temptation, an encounter that is not only going to be momentous, but potentially devastating if he does not succeed? How does he prepare? By fasting. In his humanity, Jesus is laying aside every resource at his disposal. He's wandering around the wilderness for 40 days, only drinking water, probably getting terrible sleep. Why did he do this? To reveal the power of God. To reveal the power of God. Look at the temptation in verses 3 and 4. Matthew says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan immediately jumps on what has just happened at Jesus' baptism. God has announced, this is my beloved son. And now Satan says, act like his beloved son. Act like his beloved son. If you're really the son, you don't need to be hungry. You, you, don't, need to, you don't need to be here wandering around for 40 days with only water. Turn these stones into bread. After all, didn't, didn't, didn't God, your father, give his other son, Israel, manna in the wilderness, bread from heaven? Come on, do it again. Do the man the thing. Ask God. He'll do it for you. He's your heavenly Father. How does Jesus respond? He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes from this passage, not just because he's hungry, not just because... He hasn't had any bread, but rather because this is the passage from Deuteronomy that tells us why God allowed to go hungry in the wilderness, why he gave them manna instead of real bread. Now, just as a side note here, so this is like footnote one. Every time Jesus faces temptation from Satan in this encounter, he quotes from Deuteronomy. Though we are not Israel, though we are not Israel, under the law of Israel, we follow the law of Christ, Paul says. It is clear there is still good, rich, spiritually edifying theology to be found in Old Testament books like the book of Deuteronomy. If Jesus didn't neglect them, then neither should we. So, tolelege, take up and read. Alright? End of side note. Deuteronomy chapter 8 again. Why is Jesus quoting from this? Well, again, God explains in Deuteronomy 8 why he allowed Israel to go hungry. Listen to what he says. Moses says this. You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That purpose, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you, and He let you hunger, and He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. Like any parent, God could have spoiled his son Israel. He he could have given them everything that they wanted whenever they wanted. He could have given them bread. He could have given them a, a feast. But that wasn't what was best for them. Giving them everything they wanted, spoiling them, was not what was best for them. God knew, even as He knows now, that what is best for His people is for them to learn to trust Him. For them to learn to trust Him. And and here's the reality, friends. God may put some serious damage into your life in order to get you to learn that lesson. He may literally allow you, literally allow you to go through hell and high water if it gets you to actually lift your eyes up to Him and trust Him more than anything else in this world. That's what He was doing with Israel. He wanted to humble them and let them hunger before he gave them even the manna from heaven that they might learn that they don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And quoting these verses, Jesus is saying to his tempter, don't you know that God loves all of his children? And because he loves them, he lets them go through pain and want so that they will understand he is worth more than anything else in this life. Therefore, it doesn't matter if it's easy. It is right to obey God. Therefore, we will do it. But more than that, God will provide us what we need to obey Him. God will give us the strength to endure the struggle. He will be our safety in the storm. Therefore, we should trust God. We should draw close to Him and trust on every word that comes from His mouth. And now as our perfect Savior, as our substitute, after this 40 days of the successful uh, overcoming of temptation, Jesus does not just know that intellectually. He doesn't just know that as a point of theology he read in a book somewhere. He knows that experientially through fasting. He has willingly given up his father's gifts to have more of his father. He has battled the temptations of the enemy by drawing near to God and humble dependence upon him. He has gone 40 days without food and comfort to know and to show that God gifts God's gifts are good, but God is better, far better. In the end, Jesus used fasting as a weapon to triumph over his spiritual enemy and fulfill all righteousness that he might be the perfect Savior. Now when we think about these things, we think about who Jesus is and how he fasted, why he fasted, what can we draw out of by way of implications for our own life? Here we look at the third thing, and that is this, the feasting of the saints. The feasting of the saints. A few points of application for how we should go about fasting now in light of what we've seen. First of all, we should fast in order to better trust God. We should fast in order to better trust God. As Americans, we are we are so prone to self-reliance. I mean, that's just I mean, that's who we are as as a country. Uh, sometimes that's not bad, but but sometimes it is, particularly when it when it shows up in the context of our spiritual life and in the church. Someone has said that in many many churches, everything could continue and run quite normally for weeks on end, even if God Himself did not show up by His Spirit. That's not far off the mark. Though things have changed somewhat in recent years, it's amazing how many books you find on ministry that so focus on the wheels and the cogs of ministry and leadership, they never come close to mentioning reliance on God. One pastor talked about one time sitting down in his study, in the middle of the week opening up his computer, setting out his study tools and commentaries, working on his sermon for hours before ever realizing, I never stopped and asked God for help. I never said, open my eyes to see wonderful things from your word. I never said, help me to see your glory. I never said, give me wisdom and insight and understanding and knowledge of your word. We are tempted at every point, whether it's just parenting or marriage or whether it's even doing ministry, we are tempted to believe we can live on bread alone. We can simply exist on the gifts that God has given us. But fasting helps us remember we can't. We can't live on bread alone. Fasting reminds us of our inherent physical weakness, therefore pointing to our spiritual weakness. Have you ever thought about why God created hunger? We just think about that for a minute. I mean, one person asked, why did God give us a nose? I mean, they don't look the same. Some are long, some are big, some are beaked, and some just make you burst out laughing. Um, it, it's kind of a weird thing. For, for, you know. But why did he give us hunger? I mean, he could, have, he could have made us in such a way. You know, we, we adopted this gecko, and you, like, feed it once a week. We dropped a dozen crickets on there. thing went nuts. <laughs> ate all these crickets and then just sat and sat on the sun lamp and just enjoyed himself, you know. Not going to eat again for a week. Drink a little bit, that's it. God could have made us that way. You know, we just, we just kind of know. Every week we've got to eat a hamburger or, or whatever it is, salad, you know, some beans and rice, and, then, and we're done. And we're good. He didn't. He created this thing, hunger, where we have this uh, insatiable desire to fill our belly. Why did he give us that? Well, it's not a bad desire. Physicality is not bad because Christ himself took on physicality. and He promises in the resurrection we will have physicality again. Why did he give us hunger? I think for the very simple reason it is meant to teach us to hunger for him. He gives us this sense of hunger to help us to know that's how you should desire me. Isn't that what what, what David said? Not with hunger, but with thirst. Just as a deer outrunning, perhaps even running from enemies, he is panting out in the wilderness, longing for a stream of water, just, just something. That's how my soul longs for you. Fasting helps us to see our great need of God. We need God. And this spiritual discipline can remind us to seek his face, to fear his name, to trust in his power, and to live by his life-giving word. Fasting encourages a mindset that says we should rely less on God's gifts and more on God himself. How is that going to happen? We make sure that fasting enhances our communion with God. And this is the second point of application. We should fast in order to better commune with God. We should fast in order to better commune with God. Communion is simply a word that speaks to our fellowship with God. It is the relationship that we have with Him and the affection that we have for Him. And sometimes it is the easiest thing to forget that precious and amazing thing. You try and just convey the sense of reality. Reality that so easily gets put to the back of our thinking and our living, that you have a supreme being, a creator who is perfect in every way, who is beautiful and majestic and glory, and he has created. And he has not just created the universe, an amazing universe filled with, with, with wonder and awe, but he has created every living creature, including us, and yet he has not only created us, he has made us in his image. Not only to reflect Him in His glory in a unique way that the rest of creation can never do, but to invite us to know Him and to be in relationship with Him. And even we reject that, He still seeks us out even to the point of the death of His own Son on our behalf. Furthermore, He has spoke to us. He has not just left us to wonder vaguely who He is or what He requires or what He wants of us. He has spoken to us and preserved that speech through a book. Yet yeah, how, how easy do we become the the TV sitcom dad whose, whose wife is talking and talking talking in the background and he's just saying, yes, dear, yes, dear, flipping through the paper, not carrying a lick what she is saying. How many times have we found this book lying with a coating of dust that we have to wipe off before we come to church? How often have we sat down for our quiet time and, idly flip through the pages, letting the words pass through our eyes, but never tri- penetrating our minds and our hearts. How many times have we maybe read the chapter, clicked it off our, our list of devotional time, but never bothered to think, how should this change my life and call out to God for the grace and the transformation that we need? Fasting won't let us do that because, first of all, it's a break from the routine. But second of all, it's actually causing us to give up something good and right and normal to help us see there's something better out there. Fasting, as it were, can help us sober up spiritually. Like Christ in the wilderness, it forces us to think more clearly about our life and our calling, driving us more intently to prayer and the Word. Listen to God through His Word. Don't just talk to Him in prayer. Listen to Him through His Word. Do not waste time wondering how you should pray and what God's will might be, fretting over the future. Read the book. Read the book. Do not rest lightly on a facile understanding of God. Drink deeply of His character and His saving acts. Feel the weight of His glory. Read the book. Do not stumble along darkly, inching your way to godliness and fruitful ministry, while sin clings on you like disgusting barnacles from the sea. Read the book. The great Puritan preacher Matthew Henry says that fasting is meant... To put an edge upon devout affections, to quicken prayer, to increase godly sorrow, and to alter the temper of our minds and the course of our lives for the better. In other words, fasting is meant to improve our communion with God. And in doing so, we will find that we will live better for God. We will live holy lives. Therefore, the third thing, fast in order to better live for God. Fast in order to better live for God. Remember the wilderness experience for Israel and Jesus was meant to reveal where their hearts were. It was meant to reveal their greatest love. For Jesus, it revealed a heart consumed by God, by a love for God. And for Israel, it revealed a heart driven by their bellies. You have in the course of just a few chapters of people who are crying out desperately to be saved. They don't even know what God they're crying out to. They're crying out desperately to be saved from the oppression of Israel, from beatings and from, from slavery and from, from, and, and from no food. And when God does that, it is only a short while between, before they're saying, where's the, where's the fresh meat? Where's the onions and the leeks? Boy, Egypt was so great. What? Egypt was so great. Why? Because they had a little bit of food? And now they're having to trust a God who redeemed them and saved them. Fasting shows, are are we like Jesus, following in his steps, or are we more like Israel? Are are we driven by our wants? And maybe it's not just food, it could be any number of things. But when God begins to take something away from our life, what is our first reaction? Is it to grab on and hold on to a death grip and say, No, no, I, I can't lose it, I can't let it go! Or is it to trust God and say, it may not be good for me to have that right now or maybe any more in my life. It could be anything. It could be food. It could be money. It could be family. It could be fame. Fasting teaches us. It helps us to know where we are with God, what idols might be there in our life that we've become enslaved to. It shows us where we trust and what we worship other than God. Fasting can be in this way the testing ground of the human heart, but it can also be the healing ground for the human heart. For in testing, we are not only confronted by our sins, we are also encouraged by the love of God for His people. See, I believe that God never destroys a man by conviction of sin unless He intends to rebuild him by the gospel of grace. Just so with us, even as the idols of our heart are revealed, we realize and remember we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus, His Son. Through Him we can find forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Therefore, just as Jesus did, Fasting can also be for us preparation for spiritual battle. It can be a strategic move for killing sin in our lives. In the end then, our fasting from food is meant to lead us to feasting on God. That's what fasting is all about. It's about giving up God's gifts to have more of Him, the giver. It's about humbling ourselves, deepening our dependence upon Him. It's about feasting on Him and His grace through prayer and the Word. In light of all these things, again, the elders are calling us as a church collectively to a first Friday fast. In other words, they set aside the first Friday of the month to fast and to seek God's face together. The first Friday before the first Saturday, which is our prayer meeting where our fast will break together in the fellowship of prayer. And we will begin that next month. But even as we, we culminate this series and once again in that call, I want you to remember two things about what this fast is and what it isn't. First of all, this is not some sort of directive. We're, we're not telling you, you have to fast. We're not saying that at all. In fact, as, as Richard and, and, and as Joe and as I have laid out in the last few weeks, it will become clear if that's the reason why you're doing it, then you might as well stop because it's going to profit you nothing. This is rather an invitation, an invitation to unite with God's people in this church to seek our Father's face together. The reason why we're doing this is because the questions that we have are this. What better use of our time and energy could there be? What could better unite us as a faith family? What could better focus our minds and our hearts on the plans God has for us and the ministry that He has set before us? Furthermore, you may have noticed that although I haven't actually listened to Pastor Richard's talk, so I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. None of us have actually said how to go about fasting. None of us have said you can't have anything all day. None of us have said you can have no food, but you can have water. Or you can have no food, but you can have uh, some fruit juice. You, You know why? Because, number one, we don't care. And number two, the reason why we don't care is because apparently God doesn't care. He never says anything about that in the Bible. And you have people all over the place that will write entire books explaining and defining a partial fast and a full fast and this fast and the other. Frankly, they're all just Pharisees if they're getting caught up in those details because God doesn't care about the details. Consider when Jesus talks about giving and he talks about praying and he talks about fasting. Jesus says, don't pray like these people. Instead, pray this way. And he gives very specific directions for how to pray, doesn't he? He gives the Our Father prayer. What does he do when he gets to fasting? He says, don't fast like them. Fast in a godly way, and then he stops. And he gives us no details. And so what I want to encourage you with is to say, have freedom in this. Perhaps you, because of health, you can't go a day without food. Then don't. Eat something. But maybe you need to set aside television. Maybe you need to disengage from the Internet. Maybe you need to click off your phone or or whatever it is, whatever you need to do, you fast from that thing because the point is not simply to give something up again. The point is to seek after God in a more deep and intentional way than we could do without it. Remember the words of J.C. Ryle here. Let us learn from our Lord's instruction about fasting, the great importance and cheerfulness of it in our religion. Those words, anoint thy head and wash thy face, are full of deep meaning. They should teach us to aim at letting men see that we find Christianity makes us happy. Never let us forget that there is not religion in looking melancholy and gloomy. Are we dissatisfied with Christ's wages and Christ's service? Surely not. Then let us not look as if we were. I close with a story about John Hyde. He was a man known as Praying Hyde. He was an American missionary who went to India in 1892. And in the struggle of the mission field, God withheld fruit evident fruits. He saw very little to no conversion and God did that. Why? Because it turned Hyde into a man of prayer, a man who spent hours upon his knees desperately crying out that God might bless the gospel and save souls. And in a biography of Hyde, one man recounts how the convention for missionaries in India, Hyde spent virtually the entire time in the prayer room. Here's what he said. What about his meals in his bed? The convention lasted for 10 days, and in those early days, in those early days, and his boy, a lad about 16 that he had taken to his home and into his heart, had brought Hyde's bedding and had carefully made his bed, but it was never used during the convention. I saw him more than once when the prayer room was full go inside into one of the corners and throw himself on the floor to sleep. But if the room began to get empty and prayer began to flag, he somehow seemed to know it and was up immediately and took his place with the other intercessors. Did he go to his meals? I think it was only once or twice that I saw him with us at table. Sometimes his boy or Gula, the sweeper, or one of his friends would take a plate of curry and rice or something else to him in the prayer room, and if convenient, he would go to a quarter and eat it. How his boy used to cry because he would not eat properly and would not go to bed to sleep, but would instead pray. Oh that God would move in our hearts and make us a people like praying hide. that as we draw near to Him through prayer and fasting in the Word, oh, that He may draw near to us. And in coming near to us, may we not be unchanged by the presence of His grace. Father, we stand at the end of this six weeks as we have thought about prayer and fasting. Father, it would be so easy for us to simply nod our heads and think, I understand Christian fasting better now and walk away and do nothing. Father, we certainly believe that there is a certain expectation that seems to exist among Jesus and among the other apostles that fasting will be a part of our life. But, Father, in the end, fasting is not the point here. The point is You. The point is how much we love You and how much we are willing to to sacrifice for You. God, there are things that we can't fast from, like jobs. Father, there's so much that we can give up in the pursuit of You. Father, these things aren't bad. They're good gifts that You've given to us. A job is a way to have money to provide for our family and to, to help others and to do ministry. But God, we know that You are better than any of the gifts You've given to us. Father, as a shepherd of this people that You have put in place along with To others, it is our desire to see us together as your body. To desire you more. To seek you more. Spend time with you more. That we might come to treasure you above all things, God. And you have shown us even through your Son. Fasting is simply one way to do that. So God, may we not go away thinking academically about this subject, but God, may we may we see the deeper truth that's pointing us to, and that is where we are with You. God, humble us. Empty our hands. And fill our hearts and our lives and our confidence with Yourself. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.